Hey, beer lovers. Welcome back to the DC Beer Show. I'm Richard Fowall. I'm here with the great Mike Stein. We're going to give you a quick update on all the news in the DC beer scene. We're going to run through some events, and then we're going to have today a really special interview, a conversation really, between our good friend Mike Stein and Liz Garibay from the Chicago Bruseum and Brian Alberts, Dr. Brian Alberts from Purdue University. They're going to talk a little bit about beer history and common misconceptions. That's later on in the show. Let's get started. Mike, tell us all the news. Absolutely. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good night, good beer to all those in good beer land. And I just wanted to start out by saying topically, I'll always love my mama. She's my favorite girl. You only get one. You only get one. Yeah. So the intruders, a little bit of Philly soul here on your DC Beer Pod, just to remind you that Sunday is Mother's Day. Um, But as the saying goes, blessed is a mother who gives birth to a brewer. So preemptive happy Mother's Day to all the mamas and grandmamas out there. To the husbands and wives of mamas, and especially to the women who have birthed millions of beers in the brewing movement, keep up the good work. There's plenty to do if you plan to take your mom's or mom's or mom's' mama to brunch, lunch, or dinner. Check out the dcbeer.com calendar for ideas. We'll set you straight. So I wanted to get into the first news piece. This comes from uh, Brewbound, brewbound.com, via their reporting last week, based on a Boston Globe piece, excuse me. Quote, Massachusetts retail franchiser Craft Beer Cellar is under fire from several franchisees who claim the package store's founders provide new store owners with inflated sales projections while underestimating startup costs, according to the Boston Globe. Craft Beer Cellar founders Suzanne Chalot and Kate Baker have denied the claims. They've also posted a series of blog posts to the Craft Beer Cellar website criticizing the work ethic of some of their franchisees. Shallow and Baker, who are married, have also blamed some of the issues on, quote, a group of mostly middle-aged white males who are fueled by their own internal rage and hatred of women and sexual orientations that are different from their own, end quote. So that coming from Brewbound. While there is news, you know, certainly ongoing in regards to the Craft Beer Cellar or CBC, D.C.'s CBC on 8th Street continues to be a bastion of good beer in the D.C. Brews community. It's purely anecdotal, but I went into CBC last weekend, not too long after they opened, actually right after they opened, (laughs) (laughs) expecting to be the first customer. The 8th Street CBC was humming with happy purchasers, both locals like myself and far-flung folks from out of town who were getting expert advice from owner Erica Goodrich and her team. I passed many other shops to buy beer on my walk from Navy Yard to CBC on 8th Street. I walked the entire That's, mile and that a is half. A, that is a good walk, buddy. <laughs> I'm a dedicated, All right. dedicated denizen. And I was not the first customer. I was certainly not the first cu- customer to plunk down over 50 bucks on Bavarian Weissbier, British cider, and fine lagers made in Virginia. Excellent. So as John Flurry says, vote with your wallet. Yep. Uh, so speaking of fine lagers made in Virginia, Alexandria's Port City Brewing Company announced the return of their Lagabia series with a launch party Friday. This release is the return of their Franconian Kelabia, a lager from northern Bavaria. Naturally carbonated, unfiltered, and nearly impossible to get outside of Germany. I remember speaking to head brewer Jonathan Reeves a while back about his travels when he had just returned from Franconia. 
He had done some serious research, which provided insights that went into the creation of this beer that is sure to become a Port City classic. Per their press release, quote, the Lager series was started in 2016 and explores the unique landscape of lagers. A draft-only series featuring six scheduled lagers in 2019, Franconian Keller Beer is the third release from this series. Franconian Keller Beer is 5% ABV and 35 IBUs, and it is available draft-only throughout Port City's eight-state distribution area. So that is local lager news. The last bit of news was that Saturday, last Saturday, May 4th, was the 22nd anniversary of National Homebrew Day. And the American Homebrewer Association, or AHA, celebrated with a big brew. What is a big brew? The big brew. A nationally linked event put on by the American Homebrewers Association, who partnered with over 300 breweries, homebrew shops, and beer clubs around the world on May 4th. From the AHA site, quote, held annually on the first Saturday of May in honor of National Homebrew Day, Big Brew is the largest annual gathering of homebrewers with an anticipated attendance of over 5,000 people. Also from AHA, in 1988, May 7 was announced before Congress as National Homebrew Day. The American Homebrewers Association created Big Brew Day as an annual event to celebrate National Homebrew Day around the world. Big Brew is held each year on the first Saturday in May. Okay, I got to interject something really quickly here. Please. I have to say that dcbeer.com is doing a crappy job when it comes to representing the area's homebrewing community. I want to personally apologize yes. that. But I do want to say, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to help us be better at the homebrewing thing, shoot an email to info at dcbeer.com. Uh, we definitely want to get more homebrewing clubs into the directory, or some mm-hmm. homebrewing clubs <laughs> into the directory. And we want to make sure that we're covering homebrew events as they happen in the community. So uh, we need some help to do that. To, to get all the information we need. So again, if you are a home brewer or you're into the homebrew community or you want to write stories about the homebrewing community in the DMV, shoot an email to info at dcbeer.com and we'll let you know how you can help us do that. That's right. We'd love to have your homebrew information. And I hear... I hear your uh, your Maya culpa here, Richard. Yep. yep. <laughs> I hear your confession and let me let me set the record straight. So... Uh, on Saturday, Three Stars Brewing, home to D.C.'s only homebrew shop, hosted uh, the Big Brew. And this year's official Big Brew recipe was Transatlantic Blondale from Simple Homebrewing, the upcoming brewer's publication title, and Battle Cow Galacticos, New England IPA from Providence Brewing Company. Providence is, of course, the site of the AHA Homebrew Con, June 27th to the 29th. Now, if you're wondering how the uh, Battle Cow Galacticos turned out, according to Twitter user Jen Romanowitz, 24 hours post hashtag AHA Big Brew Day and at three stars, and we have liftoff. Transatlantic Blonde is bubbling away, and Battle Cow Galacticos' Chrysan is gorgeous at DC Homebrewers at DC Homebrew Shop. <laughs> Speaking of DC Homebrewers, last little bit on the homebrew front. The uh, DC Beer, DC Homebrewers, Pizzeria Paradiso, and DC Brow homebrew competition winners have been announced. Yay, hooray! The first place winner (laughs) was Tim Ryan for Hotel Amarillo. The second place winner was Joe Foley for Rye Hen IPA. The third place winner was Jeff Sullenberger for Happy Little Clouds. And the best name winner goes to DC Homebrewers Club member Jeanette Gant. For Drink Before Labor Day, White IPA. 
Nice. Yeah, so nice. that was the big news out of the at least local homebrew front uh, last week. Well, congratulations to all the winners. Thanks Thank- for participating. Thanks for participating. Thanks for keeping the scene alive. And we promise to keep the homebrew scene alive as well as the commercial craft beer scene alive. Yep. So tune in weekly to our pod, and we appreciate you, listeners. All right. Is that the news? That is all the news. All the news that's fit to drink. <laughs> all right. Let's move on to the events coming up. In the DMV the next week, there's tons of stuff going on. Here's some highlights for you. Uh, today is Wednesday, May 8th, that we're, uh, we're putting this podcast out. Tonight, uh, single-cut beersmiths from Queens, New York, will be taking over four taps at City Tap in Penn Quarter. They're going to have the Half Stack IPA, the Softly Spoken Magic Spells IPA, Eric More Cowbell Chocolate Milk Stout and Dean Mahogany Pale L. That all starts at five o'clock at City Tap in Penn Quarter tonight, Wednesday, May eighth. Tomorrow, tons of stuff going on. Thursday, May 9th. Let's get started with finals. The finals of the Drink Local Throwdown 2019 at Rebellion DC in North DuPont Circle. In the finals are Port City versus Rocket Frog. So go by, help your favorite brewery claim the title. That starts at 5 o'clock at Rebellion DC in North DuPont Circle. Also, Thursday, May 9th, Owens Ordinary at Pike and Rose in Maryland hosts the Maine Beer Company with five different beers from the Freeport Maine Brewery, including a rare keg of their Maine Dinner, a hugely hopped Imperial IPA. Mm-hmm. Starts at 5 o'clock Thursday, May 9th. Finally, Thursday, May 9th, The Sovereign is hosting the fantastic Austin, Texas brewery, Jester King. They'll feature 15 different beers from the Texas Hill Country, including a very rare keg of Viking Metal, a Swedish farmhouse ale brewed with smoked rye malt, juniper, and sweet gale, then aged in Old Tom gin barrels. Wow. Whoa. That is a that is a beer. I can't wait to try that one. Mm-hmm. They also have Vague Recollection, a blend of two beers refermented on Tempranillo and Sangiovese grape pomace. That's some crazy, crazy beer making right there. That's some beer made with wine grapes turned back into beer. Wow. That's uh <laughs> I'm 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 really excited about that. Austin, Texas is my adopted hometown. I love that place. Uh Jester King really does make good beer. So you will find me at the Sovereign uh Thursday trying Jester King beers. They've got fifteen of them. Okay, let's move on. Saturday, May eleventh. Church Key's 10th Anniversary Celebration, Volume 1. Believe it or not, Church Key turns 10 years old in October. Wow. Uh, They're celebrating with big events all year long, really. On Saturday, they're going to have nearly 30 incredibly rare beers on draft from The Vale, from Trillium, Other Half, Monkish, Bissell Brothers, and Hudson Valley. This is a not-to-be-missed event. Saturday, May 11th, uh, starts when they open at 11.30, so 12 hours, 11.30 a.m. to 11.30 p.m. at Church Key on Saturday. Go try one of these uh, nearly 30 rare beers you can't get anywhere else in the DMV. Yeah, that's really a who's who of the best of the brewing world all in our fair city. Yeah, it's, I'm really excited about that one. Uh, of course, Sunday, May 12th, Mother's Day, uh, as we mentioned earlier. There's a, there's a few brunches going on. You can head out to the country for a Mother's Day brunch at Dirt Farm Brewing way out in Bluemont, Virginia. 
Or you can stay close to home and have a Mother's Day brunch at City Tap in Penn Quarter. Be nice to your mom. Buy her a beer. Mm-hmm. And as always, Tuesday, May 14th, Tuesday is Tuesday Brews Day at Kramer's Bar and Cafe in DuPont Circle, sponsored by DC Beer. You can get half-price pints of 18 different beers, all starting at 7 o'clock, including rotating limited and specialty-run drafts and cans. There are food specials. It's great beer at a great price every Tuesday, starting at 7 o'clock at Kramer Books Bar and Cafe in DuPont, sponsored by DCBeer.com. Get all the details about these and dozens of other craft beer events at DCBeer.com. If you want to have an event featured on the DC Beer Show or on dcbeer.com, send an email to info at dcbeer.com. Now, let's move on to uh, the great conversation with our good friend Mike Stein talking to Liz Garibay of the Chicago Bruseum and Dr. Brian Alberts, a historian at Purdue University. They're going to talk about beer history. Greetings out there in beery beerland. I am Mike Stein standing in for Richard Fawal today on the DC Beer Show. Today, we have two fantastic guests with us, which I'm very eager to uh, introduce them, have them introduce themselves. Uh, But when I told Richard that a whole host of us beer historians were coming to town for the Popular Culture Association's annual meeting, he asked me to host the show featuring the Chicago Bruseums, Liz Garibay and Brian Alberts. So here we are. Welcome to the DC Beer Show, Liz and Brian. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Great to be here. Excellent. I'm tentatively titling this show, I am not titling it Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, but Ethnicity, Beer, and Waltzes. Not as well... (laughs) I know. I'm such a ham. (laughs) Not as well known as Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, but Ethnicity, Beer, and Waltzes can be equally fascinating and compelling. Before we get into that nerdy nitty-gritty, let's let Liz and Brian introduce themselves and their work. Can you give us your title and your roles? Yeah. Uh, You want me to go first, Brian? Uh, My name is Liz Garibay, and um, I am a historian focusing on 19th century uh, America through the lens of beer and alcohol. And I'm also the founder and executive director of the Chicago Museum, a future museum dedicated to telling the global story of beer. Excellent. Thank you, Liz. Go ahead, Brian. Hi, I'm Brian Alberts. I am a historian and writer who studies beer in context, as I like to say. So my main focus, as you might imagine, since I'm uh, working with Liz a lot, is the 19th century United States brewing industry, especially as it relates to German immigration. And uh, I am also just looking to write about beer as much as I can. Uh, I've written for a few publications, Washington Post, Atlantic, and Good Beer Hunting. And I'm always on the lookout for new opportunities and new projects. Excellent. Thank you both for being here today. Um, Liz, can you tell us a little bit about the Chicago Museum? How is it similar and how is it different from other museums? Uh, well, I guess it depends on what kind of museum you're talking about. Um, I, I'm, I'm a museum professional. Um, that's the book of my career has been in museums as a uh, public historian, as educator. Um, so my goal with the with the Chicago Museum is to create an organization, create a physical space that allows you to experience history, American history in particular, or a city's history, through that perspective of beer. Um, it's not going to be a place about uh, here's how beer is made. I always tell people if you want to learn how beer is made, go to a great brewery yeah. uh, within walking distance. You can find one. Um, our institution is really focused on looking at beer's role in pretty much everyday life uh, in the past and the present, so history and culture. 
So how beer had an impact in immigration, uh, economy, industry, um, crime, politics, you know, all the things that make our worlds tick right now. Um, so we have a, a pretty big vision, uh, 30,000 square foot facility with three main exhibition spaces, one permanent. We will be in Chicago. So uh, our permanent uh, experience will be about Chicago, but then um, two temporary galleries that will rotate and allow us to tell the stories of other cities around the world. You know, a small nanobrewery, tap room, uh, event space, classroom space, fun space, all of the above. But tried and true cultural institution part of our uh, Chicago and our American landscape, cultural landscape. That's great. That's uh, certainly an ambitious project, but one so unique. I don't think there's really a model for it. You are you are blazing the trail, and and um, yeah, that's we're certainly... trying. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the first things I did, of course, was research what else was out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, the only larger beer museums were tied to a brand, right? So you go to Dublin, you go experience Guinness, or mm-hmm. you go to Amsterdam, you have Heineken, um, and then the smaller ones. We're really just focused on the brief aspects of a city's beer history mm-hmm. or somebody's collection of stuff, mm-hmm. right? We have a lot of those, and, and those are very admirable for many reasons because, trust me, I like to look at old stuff. Right. Um, but nothing that really was trying to explore that role that beer has played in the development of our country um, and our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that didn't really exist. And again, because of that museum background, I'm really focused on making it a tried and true uh, museum. Excellent. Yeah. Um, museums tied to brands. So BrewDog is another one now in Ohio. Um, yeah, in Columbus. Right, in Columbus. And then kind of the more uh, touristy uh, beer museums out and abroad when you go to, uh, let's say, the Czech Republic and you go to the Prague Beer Museum. Yeah. It's fundamentally different than um, beer museums tied to other brands. But you, uh, Brian, and I think Liz as well, were at the National Museum of American History this morning. Yeah, yeah. just right? uh, earlier today. So not a beer museum per se, but a museum with some beer, uh, both artifacts and then modern collections with uh, Teresa McCullough. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And I think uh, what Teresa's is doing and uh, what's kind of changing about the collections there is indicative of the kind of same changes that the museum is hoping to advance uh, even further, which is the idea that they're, they're starting to look at more than just the business records. They're starting to look more at the cultural changes that are going on and also just to, to, to understand how this story is an ongoing one, an evolving one. And Teresa's doing amazing work to uh, make that into a reality, to actually make collections that reflect that and that can be used in the future. And the museum is uh, very much part of that same wave. Uh, they're just doing it in a distinct direction and in Chicago. That's excellent. Yeah. Uh, I would be remiss not to mention Teresa McCullough of the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History and her Brewing History Initiative, uh, you know, sponsored by the Brewers Association. Uh, also as, as well in town is the Hyrick House Museum, uh, where you'll both be visiting tonight when uh, this pod comes out. It will be past that point, but check in with the <laughs> Museum.org. Check out the Chicago Museum. Uh, also check out Sankofa Beer and the Wayfarer Study. Uh, shout out to Jamal and the guys at Sankofa, uh, all local local yokels doing incredible work here in our nation's capital. Um, so we're going to move on. We planned this discussion uh, to cover common misconceptions about the history of beer in the U.S. pre-prohibition. So for all intents and purposes, prior to 1920, although some places 
DC included, got an early jump on prohibition in 1917. Um, there seems to be a fair bit of misunderstanding, if not outright errors, in what brewing was like before prohibition. Sometimes it's very different than brewing today, and other times it's not as different as we might think. One way that both Chicago, more so Illinois, but Chicago and D.C. are the same is that both cities brewed more beer a century ago than they do today. I can't speak specifically to the city of Chicago, but I do know that in 1917 in Illinois, uh, they brewed 6,223,97 barrels. And then in 2017, there were 385,000 and change barrels brewed. Mm. Similarly, wow. since we're doing numbers, I know it's really quite a lot. Um, the DC numbers reveal that in 1917, DC brewed 161,000 plus barrels, and in 2017, 33,000 plus barrels. So both cities have a while to go to hit the history. Yeah, we got some cap. work to do, huh? Well, let's, Absolutely. Let's, yeah. let's get brewing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so those numbers come from the Brewers Association for 2017, and then Toby's official Brewers and Maltsters directory in the New York Public Library. But let's get into some beer history, misconceptions errors are generally unknown facts. What stands out to you either in regards to beer history or misconceptions about or maybe even just erroneous things you've heard, uh, be it in books, be it on pods? We, we want to kind of set the record straight. Well, since we're talking about production numbers, uh, one thing that I think we could highlight is uh, just kind of the scale of what was going on uh, during the 19th century in terms of alcohol consumption, in terms of beer consumption, which is funny because it actually ends up kind of being on both ends of the spectrum. There was both a lot more and a lot less, uh, depending on what time period you're looking at. So one thing uh, that people may not fully know about the uh, early 19th century is that people drank way more alcohol than mm -hmm. they do today, about three times as much. Wow. You're talking about seven gallons of absolute alcohol. Alcohol, so like the 5% or 40% of whatever you're drinking, mm -hmm. uh, seven gallons of absolute alcohol per person in ar around 1830 in the United States. And we're maybe a little uh, around two nowadays. Whoa. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but the uh, funny thing about that, though, is that there was almost no beer mm. involved. I was mm. going to say that I think that's the biggest misconception yeah. that yeah. I hear is mm -hmm. that people immediately think, you know, earliest folks are drinking beer and there was – None to be had, really, unless it was imported and wasn't spoiled by yeah. the time they consumed it. Absolutely. There, there's three exceptions. because If you had an urban area that uh, you know just had a good beer culture to it, Albany, New York, uh, New York City, and Philadelphia were the exceptions to this. But they did not uh, make up for the numbers for the rest of the country. Mm. It was all whiskey and cider consumption. You had over four gallons of, of whiskey alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, you had two and a half gallons of cider alcohol. And... Um, do you want to take a guess, Mike, at what the, the beer oh, wow. rate was? Two and so uh, four point three and two point seven are the the whiskey and cider. Oh, so under one, was one tenth of one. Oh my gosh, wow. that's miserable per capita. Wow, it was yeah, that's miserable. That's offense. I am offended. <laughs> Good goodness gracious. Not to speak ill of the dead, <laughs> yeah. but clearly, clearly the interest was not so much in beer as it was in the spirits and cider. Yeah, even though they were drinking excessive amounts, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, if you think about, especially in Chicago, you know, our, our city is built on a swamp, you yeah. know. Um, it was incredibly difficult just to begin. Uh, so if you think about what it takes to make beer, right, not the easiest endeavor, uh, especially when you are trying to um, build other things. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really a priority. And if you also think about, I refer to, you know, shelf life, mm -hmm. Um, you know, whiskey lasts a lot longer. Yeah. 
Um, so, and, and it does, as we all know, for those of us who consumed both beer and alcohol, um, it does a faster job. <laughs> it right? lasts longer in more ways than one, and it, it gets the work <laughs> yeah. done quicker, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, no, that's a great point. And I think, uh, yeah, when you are trying to build infrastructure, there are some things that come before beer. So Absolutely. I'm told. Beer is always beer is an urban drink, me, but yeah. <laughs> for the most part, except for small beer um, that, like you know, housewives would make on farms and things like that. But yeah, that so, wasn't very much beer in the grand scheme, right? And so that's interesting when we think about um, the work of the home. Um, those early, those those um, colonial brewers, brewsters, and brewers of the early republic were primarily women and people of color. Absolutely. Uh, we we kind of have that's one myth. I didn't want to go too far back to sort of the 1700s, but if if we're thinking about we like that decade or that that century too. <laughs> is that okay? Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's a few good there. things happened yeah. for the country around <laughs> then. There's a couple notable <laughs> bullet points. So, um, but I think one thing I had read a lot um, when I was uh, doing my uh, master's thesis research was that <clears throat> a lot of books, you know, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s had regurgitated that Thomas Jefferson was this great brewer. But it was very hard to find proof of him actually, you know, uh, rolling up his sleeves and his pantaloons at Monticello. It was primarily the right. work of, of Peter Hemings, uh, older brother Sally Hemings, whose brother James Hemings had studied in Paris. Um, you know, they, they get this uh, prisoner of war, um, or I should say they, he comes to Monticello, that being Captain Joseph Miller, an English expatriate and master brewer. So really it's the English who, you know, it's an English brewer who passes on his knowledge to Peter Hemmings. I love how um, we want to romanticize so many people, you know, in our past, especially the founding fathers, right? Because they must have been these amazing men who did all these great things and were brilliant. And really, if you think about everything we know about them, do you really think that George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, or any of those folks were actually rolling up their sleeves and pantaloons to do anything? Hell besides, <laughs> Besides, you know, I don't know, making babies. Right. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it, it, it's funny how we immediately think, oh, of course, now that we're in this you know, age of great beer again, of course they were doing all these wonderful things with, with, right. with beer. Um, so it's just, it's interesting also the way we think of history and yeah. interpret it sometimes. Yeah, beware the modern lens we wear, right? Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, since we're talking about fun facts, um, it may be interesting to know the first president to actually brew beer while in office was not George Washington. It wasn't Thomas Jefferson. It wasn't Taft or anyone like that. It was actually Barack Obama who uh, started oh. homebrew. Make a porter? Uh, uh, honey mean? ale was the first one, hey, and he I'm made a couple it. others. Yeah. They used honey from um, the White House garden. I remember that. But even then, hang on. Did he actually get in there and? Well, that's that's so, what I was gonna say. Supposedly, it's he, Sam Cass. Uh, yeah. uh, I forget what his title is, but basically, executive uh, chef to the president. Yeah. But they were Michelle Obama's uh, Michelle Obama's apiaries. You know, her beehives that brought the honey to the White House ale. So honey yes. ale, and mm -hmm. I think porter was made as well. And and a fun fact about that: the D.C. homebrewers, one of the D.C. homebrewers members, actually commissioned. They foiled. A Freedom of Information Act to get the recipe, <laughs> and I can't oh. remember how that played out. Um, we'll it, we'll drop a link in the show, but okay. um, so you can click and read through. We actually did an article about that on DC Beer a few years back. I didn't know that days. it was. Uh, I I knew that the recipe was published. I know you can find it and make it if you want to, but I didn't know that it was like something that had to be requested or you know. Yeah, I, well, it's now on WhiteHouse.gov, and I think the yeah. initial request was denied, but eventually they just threw it up on the website. Um, talk about a great 
Chicago DC beer connection. Yeah. Barack Obama. Oh wow! Yeah. They, 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 I hope the Obamas know we're in town. I hope they. I hope they're listening right now. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I'm sure they're very you better loyal see listeners. them at one of our events this weekend. <laughs> they are avid readers. I don't know about podcasters, but yes. Um, so moving on. Let's talk a little bit about lager beer, kind of jumping from the 1700s uh, to the 19th century, the 1800s. What do we know about this newfangled at the time drink lager beer? Well, I mean, we were talking about how uh, much alcohol, but how little beer everyone was drinking before. But if you go, if you fast forward to the end of the 19th century, people are drinking, I believe, over 30 gallons of beer. That That's the whole beer, not just the alcohol uh, per person per year. They just become, we become this massive beer drinking nation. And uh, people are largely aware that, that Germans are, are, you know, to credit for that. But what a lot of people don't necessarily understand is just how rocky and contentious that process was. And it was something that kind of began around 1840. And while uh, you know, you can look to the end and see that, you know, Americans came to love lager and Pilsner beers and they came to love kind of German beer culture. Uh, it was a process that, you know, it had to change the face of American public life. It had mm. to involve uh, Americans accepting German immigrants themselves, that the actual people involved. Mm. It had to um, change the way that they thought about alcohol and beer specifically. I mean, you had to change quite a bit about American society in order to get to that point. And that's obviously, you know, a very long and complicated story that I'm happy to tell anyone anytime. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I mean, right now, it's, it, you know, for, for our purposes here is probably just, you know, best to talk about how um, a lot of Americans didn't uh, like Germans. They didn't like mm-hmm. alcohol. You know, mm-hmm. some people didn't like both. Right. And so when Germans come to the United States and, you know, they, they have their beer gardens, you know, they have their, their wonderful outdoor festivities, um, they're actually irritating a lot of people when they go do that stuff. Like, you know, in, in Chicago, like the example I like to use is that, uh, you know, you'd have the, the English-born or, you know, English ethnicity uh, Americans in church on Sunday mm-hmm. and then a German parade is going on right outside their door. So they're trying to, to worship and, you know, all they're doing is um, – and the, these Germans are just uh, being loud and boisterous and obnoxious and it, it ticks them off. And, you know, I always like to say that no matter what time period you're talking about, no matter what place in the world you're talking about, there's always somebody to spoil the party, right? <laughs> and there's always going to be one group that's picked on for whatever reason. Um, and in the United States during the 1850s, 1840s, 1850s, and even 1860s, it keeps going on for a while. Yeah. It's the Germans, you know, mm-hmm. and then it starts to sort of uh, affect other immigrant groups. Mm-hmm. I think one misconception, too, that um, I often hear is that people immediately think that we've always been drinking lagers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And as you guys know, um, that was not the case yeah. in the early 1800s, late 1700s. It's, mm-hmm. it's, we're definitely an ale-drinking nation. Mm-hmm. But to uh, Brian's point, you know, um, I think that because the Midwest – was incredibly German heavy, right? We're German towns. If you think of all the great beer cities, Chicago, Milwaukee, uh, Cincinnati, St. Louis, you know, the, these we have a, a very strong shared German heritage. So I always like to call the Midwest the Fertile Crescent of the West um, for that reason. Um, and so this is sort of like really the core of a lot of this anti-immigrant movement during the mid-19th century. Mm-hmm. It, it does happen a little bit in eastern cities, but it, it's not as prevalent because um, in like New York or Philadelphia, there, there's a lot of Germans there. New, like in raw numbers, there may be as many Germans as Chicago, but there are only like half of the percentage of the population compared to Chicago, you know, like you know, 25 percent versus like less than 10 percent. So it's not as 
conspicuous to see them because the crowd is bigger and more diverse in those eastern cities and doesn't lead to that same type of friction that we get in the Midwest, nor the same um, you know type of development in beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can only imagine uh, how you know how offended my delicate sensibilities would be if uh, there was a parade going on while I'm trying to worship, you know, especially if there's beer drinking. I mean, I might have some FOMO, but first I'd be pissed off. Um, I can uh, I can give another great story. Uh, in 1871, uh, Germany, the nation, uh, solidifies, you know, Otto von Bismarck, you know, all those little principalities and, you know, whatever, becoming the unified German nation. In the United States, German immigrants and their and their children are over the moon about this. And in Chicago, that is such a wonderful event that when news hits in May 1871, uh, the German segment of the city decides to celebrate. They start celebrating by firing off 100 cannon. <laughs> In the city, they do this at four thirty in the morning, and they're hosting a parade by nine in the morning. And what they end up doing, this parade is tens of thousands of people. They all march. Uh, I don't remember exactly where in the city it is. They they all march to this giant beer garden. Ten thousand people in this beer garden. They consume five thousand kegs of beer that day. Wow. So you know the real you, cause of the Great Chicago Fire. Exactly. Yeah. Just, just, no, no, no. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> this is myth busting. It's yes. not myth making. Yeah. Uh, good point, though. Well said. That's out I talked October, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, well said, Brian. Uh, I, I think for us in D.C., it's important uh, for our local listeners to recognize we actually had at one point in time a thousand seat beer garden in D.C. Wow. Um, mm. The closest we get to that is baseball today. Yeah. Uh, you know, our, yeah. Wow, yeah. I, I mean, we have some wonderful beer gardens around the city, but none of them that large. And there, there was a brewery tied to that beer garden, and they actually produced 30,000 barrels of beer, which no brewery in D.C. has brewed 30,000 barrels of beer since the Christian Heyrich Brewing Company closed. It's going to be a little while before any D.C. breweries eclipse that number. But the important part is to recognize that Germans brought beer drinking culture with them. Yeah, sure. absolutely. They did. Yeah. And, and, and so then I'm wondering about the tenets of that beer culture, if they still remain in Chicago today. Do you see? I wonder if you have shown up to a 10,000 person, 5,000 barrel drinking <laughs> b- bacchanalia with. All, <laughs> I, I doubt it, but maybe. Ugh, it's not yeah, it's not no. a beer fest, but maybe taste of Chicago. Might, yeah. You know. <laughs> I mean, we have a big park downtown Grant Park that sort of. Every weekend there's something happening, right? We have a blues fest, a jazz fest, a Lollapalooza now, Taste of Chicago. But aside from that, no, we don't ha- we don't have that same kind of uh, soiree yeah. that our, our predecessors <laughs> former, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> used to throw, um, unfortunately. Uh, and it's probably not as fun <laughs> as those old ones were. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Certainly a lot going on in Chicago beer. Um, I think the last number I heard was 167 breweries in the Chicago greater. Yeah, uh, Chicago yeah. Land. Chicago Land. Yes, Chicago Land. Greeting Chicago Which Land. includes Northwest Indiana, I hear. <laughs> so, <laughs> Tell that to the Hoosiers. Yeah, right. it's just a, a Chicago suburb. Yeah, well, we have the same divides in D.C., right? Like Arlington, which is just a few miles away. It's a bridge too far. I can I just refuse (laughs) to cross to traipse over the bridge despite delicious beer and great food over there. Um, But that's kind of how we are uh, as humans. Um, So I'm wondering then, uh, you know, if if there's sort of more uh, myths that you have heard or any other misconceptions generally. I mean, certainly lager. We we. You know, silly Americans tend to think, oh, it was all pale, cold lager, cold fermented, cold stored, cold served for all time. But that certainly was not the case. Is there anything similarly on that level that comes to mind? Um, you know, the only other thing, not not just connected to beer, but drinking in general, is that um, I think that 
again, talk about romanticizing things and how we interpret things is that prohibition, uh, you know, certainly is one of those topics that, especially in Chicago, right? We, we Chicagoans have this oh, weird yeah. relationship mm-hmm. with prohibition. Mm-hmm. It's like a love hate um, situation. Um, you know, there's there's not there, every saloon owner will say to you, "Well, we used to have be a former speakeasy just because you know there's cachet to it." Yeah. Um, but I think that that the one thing that people don't understand is that this whole situation that we now know as prohibition was something that took time. Mm-hmm. And we were on the verge of many mm-hmm. prohibitions, right? Yeah. The temperance movement was always moving. So I think for the most part, a lot of people think, oh, my gosh, it just happened, right? Boom, out of nowhere. Uh, woke up one day. Yeah. Um, we're drinking too much. It's it's causing bad things to happen. This is why we can't have nice things. Um, but, no, it was certainly big-time situations happening in the 1800s mm-hmm. that were leading up to this point. And often, you know, during the 1800s, kind of got squashed. Um, Civil War. Yeah. Civil mm-hmm. War was a big one, right? Mm-hmm. We were on the verge of a prohibition, but uh, suddenly, you know, people uh, fighting one another in our own country kind of took precedence, and everyone said, hey, you know what? You're going to need that drink. Mm-hmm. So keep on, keep on <laughs> right. keeping on. Right. Yeah, yeah uh, the, the, there's very clear um, roots for what eventually became prohibition all the way going back to the 1850s. And even then, the fact that prohibition happened when it did, um, what it coincided with a, a number of other factors that helped push it over the edge. Things like um, the institution of an income tax and things like uh, uh, the women's suffrage movement, them getting the right to vote because uh, those votes mattered a lot when it came to enacting prohibition. And then of World War One, of course, was a huge deal. You started uh, getting a lot of anti-German sentiment in the United States. So mm-hmm. it kind of it, it mm-hmm. wasn't just that temperance goes back that far. It's like even then, even after decades of work, prohibition required all these kind of other factors to you know the perfect storm to really form for mm-hmm. it to really get get through and be be you know, law of the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I forget who it was. I want to say it was George Cassidy, the man in the green hat who brought booze to Congress and uh, Senate offices who said, you know, you could uh, – all of all of the representatives who don't drink could fit together in one cab. Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. Like Everybody else two is, houses. Yeah. All the people telling other people what to do or <clears throat> drinking in the background, you know, yeah. doing all the naughty things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Very, very hypocritical of us, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Um, ah, humans. Yeah, yeah, good thing we've totally left that in the past. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank both of you for coming today. Do you think there are any lessons that we could sort of take with us from, you know, this heady beer history discussion we've had or or any instances of the past repeating itself that you see in, in 2019? Hmm, that's a good question. Well, um, I, I've... Be careful about this, not to draw direct parallels, because I don't think that they're the exact same situation. But you know, people are talking about craft beer all the time. They're talking about you know the stunning growth that's happened, the the rate of, of expansion, and the, you know, the the new styles, the new people drinking beer, how it's changing how we think about beer. And uh, while that that is incredibly significant, it's a wonderful thing uh, to to witness and to you know be able to analyze and, and observe. But I also look at you know the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, and back then I see a rapid expansion of breweries. I see a fundamental change in the way that we think about beer and the types of people who are drinking beer and the, and, and everything. And, and while they're not the same situation, if you want to better understand craft beer, you should be looking back to this mid 19th century period of expansion mm-hmm. uh, that you know w- had a lot of the same characteristics. Mm. Well said. Yeah, what he said. Yeah, it's really interesting. One thing that I'm noticing uh, quite a bit today, which I find a little overlap, um, is that 
the brewery that I mentioned connected to the Thousand Seat Beer Garden was called the Washington Brewing Company. Yeah. Um, and they were on 4th and F Street Northeast. It's today the Stuart Hobson Middle School. But the interesting tidbit about that is, is not long after they started making 30,000 barrels of beer, uh, a British syndicate came and bought mm-hmm. them out. Yeah. So while you see in Chicago, as well as D.C. and a lot of cities around the U.S., this kind of juxtaposition of, you know, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant or the, the English versus the German, mm-hmm. right? You could say the Protestant versus the Catholic or, or however you want to angle it, um, you know, it's like – kind of those of British heritage were, were upset with the Germans for being, you know, revelers during Sunday service. But yet a British syndicate bought the German lager brewery. This was an all lager brewery. They, they, yeah, they saw the business. Uh, they side. saw the money. Yeah. But, you know, there's another parallel, right? Because look, think about if maybe you don't have to use the word syndicate, but think about what's happening in beer today. You know, yes. venture of, capital of, and takeovers. Uh, yep. Yeah, right. purchasing happening. Yeah. And the play with language, some people say, don't say selling out, call it buying up or what, you know, it's kind of yeah, like yeah. a. We have a sugar daddy now, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Precisely. And there's really interesting things, too, in terms of valuation and how much breweries are actually worth. There's so much going on. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to the last couple pods of the DC Beer <laughs> Show and you'll get an idea yeah. of who and what we're talking about. But um, a lot of movement in brewing today, just as there was pre-prohibition. Beer so. matters. Beer matters. Yes, it does. Well, thank you so much, uh, thank you. Liz and Brian. I really appreciate your time on the DC Beer Show. And to all those listening out there in beer land, buy some DC beer, buy some Chicago beer, raise a toast to all the brewers and drinkers who came before us. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Cheers to that. Thanks for listening to the DC Beer Show. We come out every Wednesday. Please go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify. Give us a rating. Write us a review. That helps us know how to do the show better. And it tells other people why they should be listening. As always, you can find everything you need to know going on in the DMV's craft beer scene by going to dcbeer.com. Thanks very much. See you next week. 